0: I want to start today by uh, using a personal example and uh, you, you probably will gather uh, by my personal examples that I'm not a professional at handling anxiety um, but my understanding is uh, I, I think if you can see anxiety being handled by someone else uh, then that will maybe help you, I hope it does All right? because you can stand up and talk about lots of theory but it actually what it comes down to is what happens in practice uh, I said to my wife a couple of days ago that uh, I probably may not be the best person. If, if you've got to qualify for being a speaker on anxiety by being really good at handling it, then I probably don't qualify very well. Okay? The bottom line is, I mean, you could have a... a, a, a I was reading one book and this uh, fellow was saying uh, he could title his book or his, uh, his speaking on anxiety as Victory Over Anxiety, but then he realised, no, that's not true. It's actually victory in anxiety. And uh, the truth is that anxiety just kind of pops up Uh, Lots of different fears, and uh, the trick is not so much that you deal with anxiety so it's never a problem because it's always going to pop up, but you deal with it in a way that helps you to get through it. So, let me uh, set it up for you, and please, none of this is just uh, I'm not looking for pity from anyone, all right? I'm just uh, merely giving you some explanatory notes, okay? This year's been a big year for me, and I've got a couple of really large assignments that are due at the moment, all right? I'm studying a Masters of Ed. And uh, I'm almost finished. So I've got a 3,000-word paper due in about two weeks, and then a 2,500-word paper due about two weeks after that. I'm also working full-time and leading a church, okay? Now, instantly, some of you go, oh, you're doing too much, right? And all year, I've had people come up at me and just say, how do you do it? Now, the really interesting thing about anxiety, right, is, I don't know whether you've noticed this, but you can offload responsibilities and still have the same trouble. Do you get what I'm saying? So the issue with anxiety a lot of the time is actually not environmental. It's, it's deep down. It's, it's what you're actually trusting deep down. All right? Now, I'm not saying that there aren't times where you just need to take off some responsibilities. Right? I, I say to you without any shadow of a doubt that I'm doing everything that I feel like God's called me to do All right? this year. And that involves studying. Now, I could say something to you like this, I've got lots of long service, and you might say, well, why don't you just take some long service and do some studying on it? Well, I'm not going to, and you know why? Because that I don't think that's my problem. In uh, Monday to Wednesday of this week, I'm just telling you, I ended up in one heck of a funk, all right, when it comes to anxiety, all right? And it was really messy, and in fact, on Wednesday on the way to sport, I think it was Diff said something to me, or was it Tuesday or something, he goes, I'm sick of you talking about how tired you are, alright, because honestly, for those three days, it was just incredibly messy for me, on the inside, I was super anxious, I was anxious about my assignment that I had to do, I was anxious about this Sunday, I said to my community group last week that most weeks before I preach, I'll have a moment somewhere through that week where I'll think, and you guys will laugh at this, but I'll have this thought where I'll just go, I'm going to get up and I'm going to have nothing to say. You guys will be laughing. You just... <laughs> That's not his problem. He needs to shut up a bit more. All right? And I had that one this week. And honestly, I'm just telling you, it was pretty nasty. All right? And you know what I started thinking? I'm just going to give you the blow by blow. I started thinking, I'm going to burn out. That's what's going to happen. Maybe everyone's been right Maybe I'm just doing too much stuff. Maybe I just need to stop doing things. Finally, it's caught up with me. And then the self-preservation mechanism kind of kicked in and I'm just going, I need to take care of myself. And I started very, very much so. I started pulling inwards. And in fact, it got to uh, Wednesday night. And uh, you remember I've been telling you about how when, when males get anxious, they tend to get angry? Well I started getting angry Wednesday night and I started getting because I wanted to get on to my assignment and I started getting angry with my wife and with my children. There's a classic a Latin phrase that we often uh, throw out here at the project called curvitas in se and that just means to curve in on oneself and anxious people curve in on themselves. People who suffer curve in on themselves, people who fail and they sin curve in on themselves and anxious people curve in on themselves. Now, straight up, what I'm doing when I get in this funk is I'm immediately thinking about environmental factors that I need to change so that I get out of it. But, like I said earlier, environmental changes, most of the time, I don't think work because the environment is not actually where the problem is. Okay? I've still got, at the start of this week, I still had three weeks to do an assignment. And I know that I can pull an assignment together in about a week. Even a 3,000-word paper. And you might give advice to me and you might say things like this. You might say, well, listen, you made it in first semester and you're doing the same number of subjects this semester. But you know what? A lot, To a large extent, that doesn't help me. And the reason why it doesn't help me is because you're reminding me of something in my past and you're saying, you did it then, you can do it now. And some people might come and they go, oh, you'll be right, you can do it. And it's all... Can you see the issue with that kind of advice? It's, it's encouraging, and if you came up and said that to me, I'd receive it and I'd appreciate it, and it'd be a vote of confidence. But it's teaching me to trust myself in the situation. That's what it's doing. And you might, and this is why early in the anxiety series in the first one, I talked about the fact that it's good if you struggle with anxiety and it, it's something that kind of hangs around a lot over a long period of time, you, you should go to the doctor. Because the truth is that we're embodied souls, aren't we? All right. And so what happens in the body affects the soul. So I was talking to someone just recently who went to a doctor and the doctor said you're depressed and they wanted to medicate this person. The guy's real doctor came back, went back to the doctor and the doctor said you got Ross River fever. Did a blood test and of course it was. It was Ross River fever. Okay. So you need to get those sort of things checked out. Now, there's a bit of a virus going through our house. And I, as Diff said beautifully reflected to me. I was absolutely fatigued and tired, right? And I was away on Monday all day down in Brisbane and then Monday night I had a meeting with a guy and so I was just trashed, all right? Now, you might say, well, maybe you had a virus and that's, that's true, you know, but you know what's interesting is things that happen in the body, the heart of the person there's always the heart of the person operating in the midst of whatever happening is happening in the body. Does that make sense? So, it doesn't always help to just say, well, that's just a bodily thing. All right, And sometimes anxiety is absolutely just a bodily thing, which is why you should get it checked out. Or it's mostly. But there's, the heart always operates in the midst of bodily things also. Now... What actually happened at a spiritual level for me in the first three days of this week is I actually stopped believing that God's promises were for me. Have you noticed this? This is a really sneaky thing that kind of goes on. is you start thinking, or I started thinking, the promises are for everyone else. This is a classic thing for people, for example, who are depressed. You can go up to them and you can say, God actually loves you. And they actually hear in their head, God loves everyone else but me. Or if I was better, God would love me. And so what we actually do is we apply this filter where God's words come in, but they don't have the effect that that they need to have because we think it's for someone else. And then I started thinking, oh, it doesn't really work. God's stuff, his promises don't really work. But you know what? God's word speaks not just to behavioral issues. And the tendency for me when I, get, when I got anxious this week is just wanting to address the behavioural issues rather than addressing the systemic problems. And we think, and I massively believe, and the project does, that God's word and God's truth speaks to systemic problems that cause behaviours. Does it make sense? So we're not just going to stand up and say, don't be anxious. We're just going to stand up, we're going to flesh out the systemic problem underneath that results in the behaviour. What was really interesting... Is uh, my anxiety funk started turning around on Wednesday? And you'll be really surprised. And I'm going to tell you exactly what I said to my wife, but I do some professional counselling. And uh, I had a counselling session with a lady on uh, Wednesday afternoon. Turned me around. I came back and I arrived home, and um, Andrew's leaning against the letterbox at home. And you know what I said? I said, Geez, that was good. I said, I had to think about someone else's problem and not my own. I said, I think it's turned me around. Which is really interesting because instinctively you think, when I've got a problem, I've got to just delve into it and I've got to get it sorted out. But the truth is that everything started to turn for me when I actually went and I had to help someone else. And the really interesting thing about it is earlier in the week, in in my quiet time, I read this verse that is specifically, and uh, this is a bit dangerous, but you've got to be careful taking Scripture verses out of context, but I think sometimes God speaks Scripture verses by the Holy Spirit to people that are kind of out of context, but the truth is still kind of consistent with the Bible. And I had one of those. Now, the interesting thing was I didn't even notice it earlier in the week because I had this ADD anxiety thing going on. And you know what it was? It was uh, Jesus talking to his disciples and he said, don't fear about what you're going to say when you get hauled in front of the synagogues and the Sanhedrin or whatever. He said, I'll give you the words to say at the right time. Which is like, don't freak out about tomorrow. My grace will be in tomorrow. You don't need to worry about it. Yeah, for me, you know what it said? Don't worry about Sunday morning. Just don't worry about it. Because I'm going to give you the words that you need to say. Now, the interesting thing was that that verse came through to me probably Tuesday morning in the middle of my funk, right? Didn't even pay that much attention to it. And I look back on it and I think, what about the incredible grace of God that in his tenderness he's coming and he's actually sowing into the issue for me even when I don't even notice it. And it was probably about 36 hours after I actually read that scripture. And I noticed when I read it, I just thought, that's weird. But then I kind of kept going. I kind of had the ADD kind of anxiety thing where you're trying to switch from one thing to the other to try to bring resolution to it. And so you end up, my, my thinking and my heart ended up becoming uh, fragmented. But you know, where it all ended up is that God was calling on me to turn. And this is, a, this is kind of the, the guts of what I'm talking about this morning. I don't, what I want to share with you today is anxiety is about turning from fear to trust. Nathan talked before about Coram Deo and living before the face of God. Well, you can live before the face of anxiety. And that's a scary place to live, true? It's not nice at all. And you can live in the presence of anxiety all the time, but God continually calls people to turn and then to trust. And to do that, God calls people to turn and then he offers them a promise and he calls them to trust in the promise. And so what started to happen is I started to turn toward God. And it all kind of started on Wednesday afternoon. Even though I had a bit of a blowout Wednesday night where I started getting a bit angry about a few things, I started to trust. And I realized this scripture that God gave me. that he said, you, I'm going to tell you what to say in plenty of time. I'll communicate that with you. And you know what happened is the fragmentation in my head just started to subside. And everything started coming together and all of a sudden I'm getting all these ideas about preaching on Sunday and it all started coming because there was a, a move where I decided to start trusting God. My thinking actually became ordered and, and some of the processes for doing my assignment started to fall into line. And it just, that's the critical thing, the critical thing is trust. Trust. Now I want to just show you a scripture that I uh, spent a fair bit of time in. This is one of the key scriptures for me for, th- for this year. And I spent some time on this one on Thursday morning. And to be honest, I was absolutely deeply touched by this scripture on Thursday morning. Now it's a wallpaper on, on my computer. It's been a bit of a, since about April or May, it's been a critical scripture for me since then. But you know, sometimes you can just, it's like I'm going to burrow right down deep into this thing. So I'm just going to read it through for you, because this speaks deeply to anxiety. Fear not, for I am with you. I actually didn't believe that. And Thursday morning I realised it. I actually didn't believe that God was close and that he was with me. I thought I was on my own. And I'll be honest with you, some of you actually need to get busted up about the fact that you don't think he's near. Like if you think about how great God is, how big he is and how tender he is, That's an incredibly offensive thought. He would be that close and he would be that tender, he would be that loving and he would want to be that helpful and you don't even think he's close and you don't think he's helpful and he's a long way away. You see, there's always a part in dealing with anxiety, there's always a part in in Christianity that's about repentance, right? And repentance is just turning around and going the other way. And I, on Thursday morning, had to repent now, maybe that's a dangerous thing. Like if you go up to a person who's very anxious, it, it's, a, it's a dangerous thing to go up to and say, you need to repent. You need to turn and you need to go the other way. But that's actually what needs to happen. On Thursday morning, I had to repent about the fact that I had made assumptions about what God was like, about what his character was like. And the assumptions actually isolated me. We'll move on. Be not dismayed. You know what the definition of dismay is? It's discouraged. It's a discouragement and a lack of enthusiasm because of dread. Maybe some of you are dismayed. And you see, you see what God's saying there. He's going, the reason why you don't need to be dismayed is because I'm with you. Like I'm, I'm with you. I'm literally, I'm right with you. I'm like in the seat next to you. I'm not a long way away. Then look at the next bit. For I am, who's God? Yours. So this is where in anxiety you've got to slow down. It's amazing how warped God's your view of God's character gets when you're anxious. And you've got to slow down and you've got to recover that, right? So you look at this up here and he's not just saying fear not, because I'm God, that would be one thing. That would be good, wouldn't it? It's like, fear not, I'm your God. You just go, well, that's a good reason for comfort. But he he goes further and he says, fear not, because I'm your God. Well, that's a lot more personal, isn't it? He's yours. I will strengthen you. You see, you get anxious and you spin up that ADD thing and you need to stop. I will strengthen you. That's that's a real, genuine promise. Now, in anxiety, the temptation is going to be, and this was kind of me, the first three days of this week, is you read a scripture like that or you read a promise like that, you just go, okay, what's next? And you just kind of get in ADD kind of, the ADD anxiety thing and the Probably to some extent, even in our society, we, everyone gets lectured and taught and marketed and disciples need to We're just a consumer-oriented society. So we read something like that and we go, what's next? It's like, what's the next thing I can consume? This is not about consumption. God's promises are not about consumption but about trust and putting your faith in. So when you read something like that, you need to stop. I will strengthen you. And some of you need to know that God's here, he's your God, and he will strengthen you. He will. But you need to trust him. Look at the next one. I will help you. Now, I talked about this a little bit last week, but if you look back to... uh, If you look through to uh, Philippians 4, 6 and 7, it says to uh, don't be anxious about anything but with prayers and supplications with thanksgiving, right? Now, all of a sudden, I talked last week about the fact that uh, thanksgiving is your apologetic which makes faith and trust in God reasonable and it just is and this is where it kicks in, right? Because you're going to read that and you go, I will help you, Yeah, whatever, this thing's huge right now. And that's where Thanksgiving needs to kick in because you need to remember what he's done in the past. So a better way, and the other way is not bad, bad, but a better way to encourage me, if you heard me say, oh, good, all these assignments, you, you could say something, Peter, God helped you first semester, didn't he? He's goes, oh, yeah, of course he did. Well, don't you think you'll do it again? Don't you think he'll help you? What do you think you're on your own in this thing? And then the last one, I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. So when you get spun up in anxiety and worry and concern, here's how it's got to look. I am your God, stop. (laughs) For as long as you need to stop to hear the coin hit the bottom of the vending machine box. Do you get what I'm saying? Just let it go all the way down. I am your God, stop. I'll strengthen you, stop. Literally, stop you're probably going to need to physically, literally stop and let it drop in. I will help you. Stop. Stop. For as long as you need to stop. Just stop. It could be 30 minutes. Stop. Stop checking your phone. Stop checking your emails. Stop checking stuff on the stove, right? Just turn it off. Turn the iron off. Turn the phone off. Turn the computer off. Turn the music off and just stop. I'll uphold you with my righteous right hand. Stop. Let it drop. You need to stop and let those sink in. So there's my personal example. And you can teach someone to depend upon their own thought processes or persuade them that if they get out of the um, environment, they won't be as anxious. But you know what? This is one thing I've found time and time again and time and time again this year is you get your trust right and your capacity probably over doubles to handle pressure. So the issue, you might say, well, you've got lots of pressure on you. You well, probably. But you know what? God's called me to it and I'm absolutely persuaded that God's going to provide resourcing for it and I know that when I trust him, I've got more than the capacity to handle it. So the ultimate issue for me, and that's why I think you need to be really certain about what God's called you to, Right? But the ultimate issue for me is actually not, am I supposed to be doing this or not? Because I settled that 12 months ago. The ultimate issue for me is who am I going to trust to get through it? And I think that's the ultimate issue for you. I think if you look at all of us here, if you could actually get to a point in your life where you had no background buzz of anxiety or worry and you lived in a state of peacefulness, I think you would find your capacity would be doubled or tripled. And some of you probably have known it. I hope that most of you have. You've had seasons in your life where the buzz, background buzz of anxiety and worry and stress wasn't there. And man, you've probably do two or three times. And it's not about being busy, but it's just about capacity and what God's calling you to do. Is everyone okay with that? Does that make sense? So by Thursday, nine o'clock, the roaring static and feedback of anxiety had gone. Now, was there still some there? Probably a little bit, but largely it was gone. And all of a sudden, I'm ready to work, and I'm ready to receive from God what he wants to bring. I'm ready for him to teach me what to say on Sunday morning. I'm ready to do my assignment. I've written 2,200 words, and I'm pretty much, God willing, it'll be all sorted by the end of this week. All right? And it's just, I'm just telling you, it's just going really well and a whole bunch of things just kind of gelled in my head that weren't there previously and it all kind of got unlocked by the trust thing. So today, what I want to spend the rest of our time doing today is I want to look at the atomic elements of anxiety, all right? Now, in in an atom, what have you got? How many elements have you got in an atom, theoretically? Three, right? What have you got? Does anyone know? Yeah, protons, neutrons and electrons, right? And I think you're fond of anxiety and with worry. Anxiety and worry tends to revolve around three main areas. And, uh, and that would be these. The fear that you won't have enough money, the fear of other people's opinions and the fear of death, all right, tends to revolve around those three. So I want to deal with each of those um, quickly. So the first one is uh, the fear that you won't have enough Money. Check this quote out from Ed Welsh. Ed Welsh says, Money is believed to have unusual power to satisfy our many needs and wants, so it is a target for endless fears. With money we can get adequate medical treatment, love, respect and care in our old age. Nothing else in creation can offer so much control and power. Without it we are vulnerable and powerless. No wonder our fears attach themselves to our net worth. A $100 bill may look like only a $100 bill, but in it you place your hopes and dreams, your desire for influence, your independence, your legacy, your security and that of your family members. It looks like a $100 bill, but it is a symbol that represents what you feel you need. I think he's right on the money. So you might say, well, I don't really fear not having enough money, but I think we could, if we had a long enough talk, I think we could probably find some areas that kind of connected to that. You see, the real test of uh, whether you've got a fear of not having enough money is how do you go when it ebbs away? It's okay when you've got it and, it's, and, and there's a, a nice little nest egg going on there, but what happens when it ebbs away? The interesting thing is for you guys down the front here, the younger people here, is like you just go, well, I'm sponging off my parents, right? so it's kind of their worry, but one day it's going to be your worry and it might be your worry now. And it's, it's a freaky, freaky thing uh, when the money starts dwindling Well, the interesting thing is one of the uh, most significant um, moments that Jesus addresses. This whole issue of not having enough is the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount happens uh, in a number of the Gospels, but most notably in uh, in Matthew 5 and 6, somewhere around there. And he deals with this issue of not having enough food. Now, the interesting thing is, back in those days, you couldn't just go down to Woolies and just hand out some money and get some stuff, right? It was a subsistence economy. If you had a drought, it basically meant you had less food. And maybe you wouldn't have enough food. And the drought maybe could be the end of you. So you've got to remember when Jesus is talking to uh, the people in uh, the Sermon on the Mount, he's not talking to people who've got a credit card and like 500 bucks in their wallet. Anyone got 500? No. You get mugged at the end. (laughs) <laughs> Take him down You know, they haven't got a hundred bucks or two hundred bucks in their wallet They've got, they've actually They're there And they're hoping the crops are going to come through And they're hoping they're going to have enough water It's very much living day to day They were poor fishermen They were poor people selling a few items in the, in the marketplace Think a third world village And he stands up there on the, on the mountainside And he starts talking to them and it's almost like when he starts talking in the uh, the Sermon on the Mount, it's almost like it's it's almost like he's just talking to you. I don't know whether you've noticed it, but when you read the Sermon on the Mount, it's 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 incredibly personal. So we're just going to read through some of it, and I'll make a few comments. This is Matthew six twenty-five to thirty-three. Really interesting thing about the Sermon on the Mount, uh, or the section on anxieties, it starts with this. Therefore, I tell you now said this before at the project and you're probably sick of it, but I'll say it again. when you see therefore you've got to ask. what's it there for? Excellent. All right. so it wouldn't be right for us just to start reading through this section right? because Jesus has just given you an argument why you sh- he's just about to tell you why you shouldn't be anxious, but it's going to be based on a previous argument that he gave. So let's have a look at the previous argument. Here it is. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Does anyone see the connection here between this and anxiety? So this is what I'm doing this week. I'm just going, well, that's interesting. So let's just do a quick inventory of where I'm investing my time and my resources. Because if I'm investing time and resources in my reputation, in uh, my house, in things of this earth, Jesus is saying it's uncertain. Things of this earth are uncertain. So if, you're, if your treasure's here, it's inevitable that you're going to be anxious. Do you see that? It just will be. And he's saying to you, he's saying, you should build somewhere else where there's no uncertainty, where there's complete certainty. Now, here's the good thing. You build there anxiety is going to subside massively. Do you see that? You've got to build on certainty because anxiety is all about uncertainty. I don't know how this is going to end. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Now, this is why at the project we say things like put your money in the best place where it's going to get you the most returns, where it's the most secure. Because it's actually not going to be the most secure by you building your own wealth on this planet. Now, am I saying not to build your own wealth? No, I'm not. All right, But you've got to think about your wealth differently. Jesus is saying you can't keep your money on this earth but there's a way to take it with you in heaven. You can use your money in a way that it builds certainty into the future. you get what I'm saying? And you've got to do that, right? And he's saying if you don't do that, anxiety is going to be the result. Interesting. Anyway, now that we've read that, we can uh, continue on in Matthew 6. He says this, Do not be anxious about your life. What you will eat, of what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Isn't this interesting? Jesus cuts right to the heart here. The three big issues, eat, drink and wear. Those are the critical issues, aren't they? It's like if, if you guys all came to church today and you're going, well, we've, got, we've had no food for the last three weeks and you're just wearing tattered old underwear, right, because you, I've got no clothes. And I've got no drink, I'm famished. You know, those are pretty critical issues. He cuts right to the chase. What does he say? Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? That's a really perceptive question. Because there's a lot of the time that we actually think life is about food, clothing, and drink, right? And Jesus would say to you today, so you say, Your life's more than food and your life's more than money. It just is. You don't need to worry about that. Money cannot make or break you. Like, think about that. Money cannot make or break you. That's what Jesus is saying. Do you believe that? It's like a stop moment. Do you actually believe that? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than name? What's the answer? What's the answer? There you are. Now you've got to think. I mean, you're thinking... Jesus is talking like a, about a crow or a magpie. A random thing that just kind of scratches around and picks up stuff all over the place to eat. And he's saying that his father's actually feeding the random bird that's just flying around, scratching things up from all over the place. And then he says, you're way more value than them. So when you go out, I mean when you go out from today, one one little tip for anxiety is go out and just stop and look at magpies because that's what he would have been talking about, something like that. We've got this crazy magpie that just keeps hanging around our place. I always joke with my wife about the fact that she's got these dumb bird friends that hang around the house, right? Because she's got these little birds, these wild birds that love to just hang around and they come and sit on the windowsill and kind of look in and look in from on the fence and We've got this magpie now at the moment, just kind of hangs around our house. And I'm just going, "Well, it's interesting. It's a bit of a sc- scraggy-looking one. Maybe it's a nerd of the of the of the flock, or whatever they're called." And uh, feathers kind of sticking out all over the place, but it likes to come around and just sit under our pergola and look inside the house, and you know, look at the birds and just say, "This is something that Jesus is talking about." He's saying you're much more valuable than a bird, and I look after that bird. And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? You know, the the original language um, in Greek actually says, uh, who can add a single cubit to their span? All right? Now, it seems to be saying, if, if your life is, it's a bit hard to translate, but if your life is like a walk, a journey, Jesus is saying, who can add a single cubit to their span? Now, you might be saying, well, how long's a cubit? Let me tell you how long a cube it is. It's 18 inches. If your life is one big long marathon, you actually can't add 18 inches to the length of your life by worrying about things. And then this. And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon and all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these but if God so clothes the grass of the field which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven will he not much more clothe you are you of little faith so at this point in time you don't think carnival of flowers grand champion flowers because Jesus is not we're not he wasn't in Toowoomba all right and it's not 2013 and he's probably standing there and he sees a flower that's growing in between two rocks see that wild flower I clothe it. You see, he's talking about the kind of tough wildflowers that that probably grow on a vacant lot or on roadsides among the weeds. And remember, these people are poor. They don't have flower gardens. You see, he's pointing out one that's maybe between those two rocks and it's got a flash of colour. He says, look over there, look at that one that's growing. It's not toiling or spinning. I clothe it. I look after it. And then he goes on and he seems to start talking about the drivenness that we often have. Therefore, don't be anxious saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things. That's an interesting comment. God would have you not be driven like everyone else is driven to get food, clothing and drink it's an interesting question do you look different to other people around you do you look different to your neighbours or would they look at you and go well they're driven to get cars and houses and shelter and food and clothing just like I am because Jesus is and it's not like some of you going okay so we don't need to wear clothes no I'm not saying that right I'm not saying that, he's just saying don't be driven by it, you'll look different. The Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. That you need them all, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. You see, Jesus knows that money worries abound. They absolutely do abound. And there's something about money worries that's got an obsessive component to it, doesn't it? I've got to get it. And this is why I think Jesus speaks to the drivenness of it all. Because you can go to bed at night and have money worries, and you can wake up in the morning and the money worries say good morning to you, don't they? Hey, how you doing? Bank account hasn't changed overnight, or maybe it's gone down. It greets you in the morning, doesn't it? Interrupts you on the way home when you're driving. Am I going to have enough when I retire? Have I got enough for tomorrow? Have I got enough for next week? And they play with your mind. And Jesus is saying, don't build treasures on earth because Jesus provides certainties to deal with the uncertainty of money. True? He says there's so much more to you than what you have or you don't have. And then he says, look at the crows. I'm looking after them. And in our day, you would say, look at the pigeons, look at the magpies, look at the rabbits. We've got rabbits decided they're going to move in on our block, and they're not paying any rent or board. I think there's about 20 of them up there. Up the back, they build burrows, and God's saying, well, I'm feeding them. He's going, well, feed a few less, all right? Because I don't want them in my place. Then he says, listen, don't depend and get all freaked out about your life because you can't add a single cubit to it. And then he says, God cares for you. And there's a story I read by a guy called uh, David Powleson, a biblical counsellor, and I just want to read it to you. He says, I watched a toddler, this is at a pool, he and his wife are at a pool. He said, I watched a toddler, a little girl, maybe two years old. She waded into the shallow end of the toddler pool and was heading boldly toward the deep end. No fear, full of determination. She started out ankle deep, up to her knees, then to her waist. Pretty soon, the water was up to shoulder level. She was bold and kept heading into the deep end. What if she stumbled? She wasn't all that stable on her feet, but right behind her, every step walked her mum, with hands outstretched. Two alert hands poised eight inches from the little girl's shoulders. At one point... The girl slipped slightly. I don't think she even realised it, but her mother reached out and steadied her. And then Powellison makes this comment. Your father is God. Someone is right there, like that mum with her toddler. True, isn't it? Right there. What about this one? Fear of other people's opinions. This is a classic Seinfeld gag. According to most studies, people's number one fear is public speaking. Number two is death. Death is number two. Does that sound right? This means to the average person, if you go to a funeral, you're better off in the casket than doing the eulogy. This is huge. Fear of other people and their opinions is absolutely huge. The number of people that just operate on the fear of other people's opinion is just incredible. And uh, Diff and I were having a conversation about this the other day. There's this lady, I'm going to tell you anything so you can't identify her, but there's this lady that I've been watching for a while and I've had something to do with for a while and I, for the life of me I haven't been able to work her out. And it's just a penny, I think has just dropped in the last week that she is really concerned about what other people think of her. And it just influences everything that she does. And there's uh, some people who have done some study uh, and, and written some books. One guy's name is uh, Alain DeBotton. Um, but there's a popular term uh, out there, just so that you know, called status anxiety. All right. Now, don't ask how uh, I came to be on the Cleo website, but uh, on the Clio website, um, it says, according to psychologist Rena Sarkis, status anxiety. That would be a cool last name, wouldn't it, Sarkis? Anyway. Refers to being preoccupied with a feeling that you're not good enough unless you match up to others. People who experience these feelings tend to compare themselves to others and may feel as though they will never measure up. Huge issue, in fact, such a big issue that we'll probably do a whole series on this at some point in time because it's really a dominating issue for a lot of people. And some of you just kind of go, oh, I don't think about other people's opinions too much. Well, I suggest to you, put you up the front and let's have you share something for five or ten minutes in front of church. And then you, you, some of you would probably be okay with it, right? Now, the reasons why you'd be okay with it would be interesting. Some of you just go, yeah, I can take that. I'll do a better job than Sondagel, and maybe you would, all right? But sometimes that can come from a, a sense of uh, arrogance. I mean, it can come from a good place. But some of you just go, no way. I am not doing anything publicly. But it's amazing how much this, uh, this impinges. What are people actually thinking about me? On Wikipedia, it talks about status anxiety as well. It says, Status anxiety discusses the desire of people in many modern societies to climb the social ladder and the anxieties that result from a focus on how one is perceived by others. The really interesting thing, like people often talk about the peer pressure that exists in a school, right, in a high school. But I actually think if you put adults in the same kind of pressure cooker of a school, they'd probably still exhibit similar tendencies. Because what we tend to do is we actually tend to get people around us that like us and we tend not to get people around us that don't like us or people whose opinions of us are negative. Does that make sense? And, that's, and it's almost like you set up your little cushy environment where uh, someone doesn't think poorly of you because you just get all the people that you like. Now, when you're in a school, if you're a teenager in a school, you're in a situation or a scenario where you don't get that choice. And added on top of that is the fact that someone's sense of themselves and their own personal development is actually happening in the midst of that. And it's a pretty pretty intense little uh, little environment. But I'm a huge believer in the fact that adults, and I've been in some of them, like I've been in some uh, study kind of uh, assessment situations where adults are under similar pressure to uh, teenagers in schools and they're not that different to the teenagers. Because I think this mechanism kind of kicks in oftentimes is what do other people actually think of me? There's a guy in the States who's a radio announcer called Howard Stern. Uh, They call him a shock jock. He's probably the guy who's kind of out there a bit in terms of the way that he does his uh, DJ, uh, DJing. He um, he said this in an article in Rolling Stone. The curse is I take it so seriously. i got to know, do you think I did a good show and are you satisfied? That's the neurosis and that's the source of all problems for me. Really interesting. Now this is a bind, isn't it? Because he's a radio announcer and if people don't like his show, they're not going to listen. And then that's going to be a problem. So... Other people's opinions at some level do matter but often what happens is other people's opinions get far too high a place in our lives. Now, I don't know what you think. I'm assuming you're coming back because sometimes I can say a couple of useful things. All right? But you know what? If I'm totally useless at speaking, you're probably not going to come back. You just go, they need to get another guy and maybe you're thinking that anyway. I think they need another guy. All right? But you can even be a useful speaker or a useful presenter, and this happens to me sometimes, and I can get halfway through a message and I can just go, mean, I'm not doing very well today. And you know what starts or, or threatens to dominate my thinking is what you're thinking of me. And you know what's interesting is as soon as that actually happens, I stop taking my cues from God and I start taking my cues from you. And I'm standing in and going, Well, what does that facial expression mean? They don't like me. They don't like what I said, I must be really bored. that was a really bad joke. Do you get what I'm saying? And you're all kind of smiling now, so I'm feeling good about myself. <laughs> Do you get my point? It's, it's a, uh, a God's called me to this, but this is one of my tendencies, is to care too much what other people think. Now I need to listen to what people think, and I need to listen to criticisms from people. I certainly need to listen to encouragements too, but you know what? Ultimately, I need to make sure every time I stand up here, my cues don't come from you, my cues come from God. And when the transition happens, when my cues start coming from you, it's just going to get worse, I'm just telling you. So if there's been some bad messages, or you think a message is starting to take you, you just need to pray, all right, and just pray, God, that was a really bad joke, and I pray that you forgive him for that. <laughs> all right, please help him right now to put his trust in you and to take his cues from you. True? Now, the thing is, some of you are pretty protected from fear of man or fear of other people's opinions because you make sure you're ordering your life so that you never get tested in that way. But if you got tested, you'd be in trouble. All right? So here's a classic saying that uh, someone gave me uh, a while ago, and I think it is so perceptive. It goes like this. Oh, sorry, I should just uh, read that bit from Howard Stern. Down the bottom right-hand corner of that cover, it says... uh, uh, deeply neurotic, desperate for approval, and happier than ever. I don't know, it doesn't sound happy, that quote there, right? But anyway, that's the source of all the problems for me. This is where we are today. I am not who I think I am. You have to think about this one. I am not who you think I am. I am who I think you think I am. True? True? Now the really interesting thing is with uh, social media and all that sort of stuff, you know where we've gone to now. I think we've gone to the next level. I am who I tell you, you should think I am. So we promote ourselves to each other and we've learnt how to market ourselves to each other and we've got people who've got multiple social networking profiles so there can be one particular persona here and a different one over here so we can market ourselves to each other. All right, and here's the truth. See this? Small circle, small circle, big one. That's reality, right? We're pretty small, everyone else is pretty small, God's big. Didn't confuse anyone, did I? Excellent. Here's what happens with fear of other people's opinion. God gets smaller, we get a little bit bigger, and other people are huge. And there's a great title for a book, and I really encourage you to read it. We've got a copy that we can share around with you called uh, When People Are Big and God Is Small. Because what actually happens is people become God over us. They dictate our morality to us. They dictate our purpose to us. They dictate our vision for the future. They dictate our identity. They actually take on a religious role in our lives and they become really, really significant. Now, you need to reorder your perspective. This is what Jesus says... In Luke 12, verse 4 to 7, he says, I tell you, my friends, don't fear those who can kill the body and after that have nothing more that they can do. But I warn you who to fear, fear him who after he is killed has authority to cast you into hell. Yes, I tell you, to fear him. There you guys are going, well, I thought you are telling us not to fear God. But you know what's interesting about this is look at the very next thing that God says, Jesus says. He says, are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? And not one of them is forgotten before God. Why, even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, you're of more value than many sparrows. And there's a sense in which our fear of God has got to be more supreme than our fear of other people. But fear of God is not ultimately about fear of punishment. Because fear is about respect too, isn't it? It's about honoring and it's about respect. And there's a problem with our fear, an appropriate fear. We fear the punishment of other people's opinions and what they will do to us, we need to flip that and have a fear and a respect for God and his size and his magnificence. We need to turn from anxiety about what other people think to trust in God. And the Bible speaks about this so much, it's incredible. You can go to Psalm 118. um, It says, The Lord is on my side, I will not fear. What can man do to me? The Lord is on my side as my helper. I shall look in triumph on those who hate me. We just don't have enough time. It's all over the place. In uh, Proverbs twenty nine twenty five, it shows this uh, juxtaposition between anxiety and trust. It says, the fear of man lays a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. And then in Hebrews 13, verse 5 to 6, it says, keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? And it's a classic thing. If you look in uh, John uh, chapter 12, after Lazarus had been raised from the dead, the Jews got really sick of him going around and talking about Jesus bringing him back from the dead. And you know what they decided to do? It's like, we're going to kill him. That's what, and it's like, yeah, like that's going to scare him. He's already been dead once. <laughs> All right? We're going to kill him. And so, it's, it's I mean... It doesn't say anything about Lazarus, but I imagine Lazarus just kicking around, just going, is that all you're going to do? Is that it? Because that's kind of Jesus' rationale and Jesus' logic. Don't be afraid of them. I'm looking after you. All right, really quickly. Fear of death. Woody Allen said this, I'm not afraid to die. I just don't want to be there when it happens. Pretty true. Death is a freaky, freaky thing. And you've got things like fear of bridges, planes, many other things. It's all a fear of of death. Some people, I've heard them say before, that anxiety is, is a fear of non-being in some way. And so it's kind of connected in some way to this whole fear of death. You see, no thought control or relaxation really touches the fear of death very much. It's actually a stalker that stalks us with a vague presence. And when it gets up front with us and we start thinking about our own mortality and our own death, it, uh, it becomes all-pervading. I think horror movies are... Um, Are scary because it brings death up very, very close. And not only that, but the way that you're going to die is fear inspiring, isn't it? You see some brutal ways that people die scary, painful ways. You just go, oh, I don't want to go like that. And so one of the classic fears that people have is hypochondria, isn't it? It's like that spot, it's going to take me down. All right, it's that mole. It's, you know, that's a cranky one. It's going to take me. That'll end me. But the truth is that fear is, as I shared last week about myself, that the fear of death often actually has a spiritual root. So I just want to throw a couple of scriptures around and then we're going to finish up. The issue of fearing how someone's going to die. What do you need to turn from? What do you need to turn toward? Well, here's what you need to turn toward. Isaiah like 46.4, isn't this incredibly tender? Even to your old age, I am he. And to grey hairs, I'll carry you. Don't trust in the medicos. Don't trust in them. Now, at some level, you need to, right? But don't ultimately trust in them. So this is not, I bet you that's going to be misquoted. That'll end up on YouTube for sure. It's just like pastor of the uh, project says, don't go to the doctor. I'm not saying that right just say don't put your ultimate trust in medicos they're not the ones ultimately that are going to carry you i have made and i will bear i will carry and i will save king asa in the old testament it's a pretty weird name but king asa in the old testament got busted because he went to the doctor before he talked to god about his stuff his physical problem all right you just want to make sure you're always talking to god god's the one ultimately that's carrying you and if Look, old age. These guys down the front probably don't think they're going to get old, but you guys will get old and you get all decrepit like the rest of us. Or maybe not. Maybe that's a bit rough, isn't it? And things have just stopped working, and body parts, and legs, and knees, and all that sort of stuff just stop working as well as what they're meant to work. You know what God says? He says, when you get there, and the doctor can't help you anymore, and even before the doctor could help you or stopped helping you or whatever, he said, "I was carrying you the whole way. I'm going to carry you." And you know what? You could go through brutal. And I don't know this because I've done it, but you could go through a brutal, painful death and it will be okay if God carries you. And some of you have seen people do that. People who put their trust in God and God's carried them through the most brutal, painful end to their life. And you know what? Maybe that's not great. Well, it's not great. But you know, I reckon a good line is, if God carries you, it'll be okay. It'll be okay. In Hebrews 2 the writer of Hebrews makes this comment he says since therefore the children share in flesh and blood he himself likewise partook of the same things Jesus came became human so that through his death on the cross for sin he might destroy the one who has the power of death that is the devil and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Jesus' gig in dying for you is to take away the fear of death because it just changes it. If you belong to him and you've asked him to forgive you for your sin and you've turned from your, your disobedience to him, it changes death, which is why in the New Testament, I don't know whether you noticed, but in the New Testament it speaks often about death as falling asleep because for Christians it's different. I'm going to show you a clip. This was uh, about the Kenyan shopping mall terrorist attack about a month ago. And I want to ask you this. Do you think, how would you go in this situation? Now, it's a very, very intense situation, right? And I think, quite rightly, there's going to be a whole lot of vigilance going on, which is like the first week of the anxiety series. And God, that's a good thing. But how would you go with uh, what actually happens in this news report? Here we go. Good evening. Welcome to ABC News Queensland. I'm John Taylor. Terror has struck the heart of Kenya as gunmen stormed a shopping mall in Nairobi, killing dozens. Among the dead, two Canadians and two French women. The Somalian Islamist group Al-Shabaab has claimed responsibility for the brazen attack. Gunmen are still holding an unknown number of hostages in a standoff with Kenyan security forces. From Nairobi, here's the ABC's Martin Qadrhi. Panic at one of Nairobi's most upmarket shopping centres, hundreds were inside when gunmen attacked. (laughs) The luxury mall is popular with wealthy Kenyans and foreigners, shoppers scattered, fleeing masked men as they started setting off grenades and firing automatic weapons. the floor and slowly slowly they're going up and up. Is very bad, Witnesses said the terrorists separated Muslims and Christians. The Muslims were set free. They said if you are Muslim, stand up. We've come to rescue you. Stand up and go. Those Muslims left with their hands up and then they shot two people right next to me. Hundreds of people were injured, many seriously. <laughs> Even those without injury struggled to walk away. Many overcome with emotion. Lots of gunfire. confusion. me He doesn't know what to do. How'd you go with that one? I mean, that's been... The whole of my life, I've had people saying things to me like, if someone comes in with a gun, would you admit that you're a Christian? And would you say that you're a Christian? Or would you want to get out of it? And I'd never seen it until I saw that news report. That's what they're doing. It's like... Muslim or Christian? And then they shoot two people who aren't Muslims. This is what Jesus says in Luke twelve, eight to 12. He says, and I tell you, everyone who acknowledges me before men, the son of man also will acknowledge before the angels of God. This is the deal. Jesus says this often. He says, the attitude you have to me is the attitude I'll have to you when I come back. But the one who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. And everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but the one who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. And when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. Your life's going to be on the line. And history actually tells us the first 300 years roughly of Christianity, they were getting slaughtered. That's why you never, ever want to say the start of of Christianity and the start of Islam is the same, because they're just not. The start of Islam for the first 300 years, they were killing people, generally. It was like convert or die. The start of Christianity is, if you're a Christian, we're going to kill you. We're going to feed you to the lions. We're going to tie you to a stake and burn you. I mean, to the point where some Christians actually ended up being kind of the party lights for one of the... uh, one of the rulers of the time, they covered the Christians, they tied them to posts and co- covered them in, in pitch and they set them alight while they were alive with fire. And the question, this is a really, this is a really probing question for, for myself and maybe for all of us, is your fear of death that settled? That that would be okay? That you would be okay? You can look in Acts at the story of how Stephen gets stoned for testifying to Jesus. And you, and you wonder, like, I, I was thinking about it, what was he like the night before? I mean, I read yesterday about the last meals that people who have capital punishment applied to them, the last meals that they actually eat. And I thought, I wonder what Stephen was like the night before. He actually had to testify to whether he followed Jesus or not. And if you read the section in Acts where he does that, he just comes out swinging he just does not come out like an anxious, afraid mouse wanting to hide in a corner. He comes out swinging. He's just kind of go, well, if I'm going down, this may, be, this may as well be a good shave, All right? This is my chance to say everything that I wanted to say to these guys because I know this is going to be the end. And then you get this beautiful picture of, uh, of Stephen when he's being stoned at the end where his face is radiant because he can see God. And like, I'd ask you, is, is martyrdom ever okay? Well... It's terrible. But did it look like Stephen was okay in the middle of people killing him? It did. It did. Would you be okay? Would I be okay? Is is my anxiety, my fear of death dealt with to that extent that it would be okay? Okay.